Well, welcome to all of you that are here for the first time and those of you that are watching online. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. We're continuing in our topic on worship. It's our summer worship series, and we're going to talk about everything related to worship for the next six weeks. Aside from the conference, it's an eight-week series, and we're going to teach on all the multifaceted components of worship, all right? Today, I want to tell you how I grew in worship how the Lord taught me directly what it meant to worship. The Holy Spirit is the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to teach us how to engage properly with the bridegroom. The Holy Spirit teaches us what true and proper worship is, and in turn, we grow in our maturity of worship over time. But wherever you're at today, whether you know a little about the Lord or a lot about the Lord, he still will take your worship just as you are. You come to the Lord as you are. You don't have to have it all figured out. So even as, as I teach you in maturing in your worship, what I don't want you to do is fall into any guilt or condemnation as I challenge you. I want you to remain like a child, and I want you to come authentically and humbly just as you are to the Lord. He'll take you just as you are. The tax collector and the Pharisee both went into the temple to pray and worship. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I've done everything right. I'm in such a good place. I fasted, I prayed, I give, I'm living right, all the right things. And thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. The tax collector's beating his chest. He was in so much humility that he couldn't even lift his eyes to the Lord. He had his eyes down, beating his chest, but he's still crying out for mercy. God took and accepted the worship of the tax collector before the Pharisee. And what I would suggest is many times we don't know how to be the tax collector and we act more like the Pharisee. And God doesn't want your Pharisaical worship. He wants your heart. He wants spirit and truth worship. Anything outside of spirit and truth worship is of the flesh. The Lord is spirit, and those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. So when we think about truth, whose truth is it? My truth or his truth? It's his truth. But the challenge is, is if we don't understand who God is, his character, his nature, if we don't spend time in the word learning about him, to really know who we're worshiping and why we're worshiping, then many times our worship's of the flesh, not in the spirit. So then I make things up. And I don't believe you should ever fake it till you make it. And sometimes I don't know what to do, so I just start singing, or I lift my hands and surrender. God accepts that, but I'm not trying to make something up in hopes that it moves the heart of God. I'm not pretending. I'm just saying, Lord, I love you. Lead me into proper worship and engagement. See, if you think about the pattern of the tabernacle, you had the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. First, you went to the brazen altar, which today is a picture of the cross. Then you go to the bronze laver, which today is a picture of baptism and a washing of the water of the word. Those two things had to happen before you could go into the inner court. And in the inner court, you got the fire of the Holy Spirit and the candlestick, you got the fresh bread, and you have the incense, which is the prayer's coming from your heart. And when you offer those things properly, in turn, you have access into the heart of God or to the Ark of the Covenant of his promise. 
So all those things are a proper process of entering into worship with the Lord. And today, God has a proper process as well. I have so many stories when it comes to worship, so many stories. I've seen people come into church that I know are living in complete demonic deception. And they came in haphazard, not really wanting to surrender their life to the Lord, haphazardly receiving communion, haphazardly worshiping God, basically mocking God in their worship. And there's always gonna be those people around. In fact, there's people that have come here that are Wiccans, that are warlocks and witches. I've met them personally. I've cast demons out of some of them here, right here in the front row that come to disrupt this service that aren't really here to worship. They're really here to distract and interrupt the process of God. But the thing is, is if we're worshiping properly in the presence of God and our hearts are pure, whatever the enemy plans to thwart or distract or deceive can't stand in this house. And I've shared this story many times where the girl was here sitting in the back. She was a warlock. She was here to curse me and distract dis- distract the service. And every time she was speaking a curse against me, a dagger was sticking her in the stomach. She felt like this stabbing thing in her stomach. And what she realized was that the love of God in this house and coming from me, that she was not more powerful than that. So she came up to the front and she said, I came here to distract. I came here to curse you. And the entire time I was feeling sick and I realized I need the love of God in my life. And we set her free right there. And then, by the way, before she left, and she said, just so you know, I see a lot of the people that I know and run with in your church. Now, that's nothing to be freaked out about. What I challenge you is be authentic in your worship. Just come hungry for the things of God, and let's enjoy his presence, because there's no spiritual yin-yang theology. Light and dark are not equal. The light is way more powerful than the dark. When Philip went into Samaria... What did he do? Did he go march around Simon the sorcerer's house and curse him and curse the psychic? No, he just preached the gospel and baptized people, set the captives free, casting out demons, and in turn, the sorcerer took notice and said, I want what you have. And today we're gonna talk about some incredible moments of worship that I believe will really speak to your heart in how you worship authentically and accurately. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start with a couple stories that I went through personally when I was going through some of my most difficult times in my life and how the Lord taught me how to worship. Many years ago when I first came to town, I was working at a, a video satellite church called Victory South Coast at Lantana and I-37. It was a very difficult time for me. It was a video church. The pastor was not local. Everything was timed. There was no real move of the Spirit, and in many ways, it was killing me. But that death was designed by God to kill anything in me that was of me, anything that I thought I was going to do outside of him. I rolled into town with long hair and earrings and driving a convertible Camaro SS with an LS1 super fast engine. I was on fire for the Lord. I was radical. I was crazy. But in many ways, I was unbalanced and I was unhealthy and I wasn't seasoned properly. I was a raging blowtorch instead of a cool flickering flame. Understand that? And so in turn, God wanted to balance me out and season me so that I would actually worship the Lord properly, not in the way I thought that I should worship the Lord. 
And an attorney would ultimately have me cut my hair. And I remember when I cut my hair, it literally felt like I was in an identity crisis. Because in so many ways, the hair represented a nonconformist, wild, radical, out-of-the-box thing in my life. And that's who I was. But I was leaning on that to find so much of my identity. And in so many ways, my worship was like that as well. If I was more demonstrative, if I danced more, if I shouted more, if I prayed in tongues more, if I did all the right things, then God would show up. But what I want you to know is that's not how it works. You don't get to define what worship is. The Lord defines it, and he teaches us. Not only does he teach us by his spirit, but he teaches us through fathers in our lives. I have my good friend Tor Nordstrom here. We've spent so much time together in Tulsa. When we were in Tulsa together, we would ride around and go hunting, go fish, do things, and many times I would just haphazardly pray out in tongues. And my friend Tor would say, why are you praying in tongues right now? And I said, I don't, I don't really know. I just felt like I needed to. But even in my prayer, it wasn't spirit-led because I probably was in fear or worry or nervous or anxious about something, and I thought that if I just prayed in tongues, that would fix it. And what I want you to understand, it's not necessarily about the action as much as it is about the heart. It's this confident understanding. Like, I don't pray out of fear. I know I used to pray out of fear, and some people pray out of fear, but I want to challenge you to move out of praying from a fearful place, because if you really knew who the Lord was, your prayer life would be different, and your worship would be different. He's such a loving and caring God. He's not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so as you mature, you mature into the understanding of power, the understanding of love and a sound mind, and you don't stay the same. And so I was in a massive amount of fear when I was working at this last church, a massive amount of fear. I was unhappy. I didn't like being in Corpus Christi. I didn't know anybody. I had all kinds of issues with Corpus Christi. And I was in a real dark place personally. I stopped prophesying. I stopped being extravagant for the Lord. I didn't want to worship. I put my drums and percussion into storage. And I just basically died. And I remember the Lord said to me, he said, son, do you believe that I'm who you say I am? I said, of course, Lord, or I wouldn't say it. And then I heard the Lord ask me a second question. He said, son, do you believe that I'm who I say I am? I said, well, Lord, I don't think you would say something about yourself that you're not. And then he asked me a third question, and I realized God wasn't really asking me the questions for himself. He was asking me the questions for me to understand something. And the last question he asked me was, son, do you believe that I am who you sing about in your songs? And I realized that in all honesty, I probably didn't. And that's why he was asking me. Because if I really did believe that he was who he said he was, and if I really did believe that he was who I said he was or sang about in the songs, my life would look different. Because if you look at all the lyrics of these songs, we're so good at going through the motions of the worship and singing the songs, but not really understanding what we're singing and saying and who we're singing about. Because my life was a reflection of my worship. And people come to me all the time and say, Pastor, I'm in so much fear and worry and doubt and darkness and depression. 
And then I'll challenge him to get intimate with the Lord and spend time abiding in his presence and digging deep with him personally and privately. And they say, oh, I do that. I do that every day. I'm like, okay. I'm like, hmm, well, do you spend time in I read. I read my Bible every day. Something's amiss if you're spending time in the presence of God and reading the word and worshiping and you're still so depressed because your eyes have shifted off of one thing to something else, right? And I said, well, tell me about your quiet times. Oh, I, I spend 10 minutes with the Lord in the morning and I read my little daily scripture that comes up on my email while I'm having my coffee and then I'm out the door. Now, I'll tell you, 10 minutes is better than nothing. What I don't want you to do is fall into a measure-up performance mentality. But if I just spent 10 minutes a day only with my wife, we would have problems. Our intimacy life would really suffer. Do you understand? And I don't get to go to my spouse and dictate the way it's going to be. That's control and manipulation. Instead, it's a commonality. It's a communion. It's a common union. It's reciprocal. I'm trying to explain a mystery to you in worship today. That when I come to the Lord, the Lord already knows what I need. If I think that my worship is moving God because I'm doing the right things, I'm sadly mistaken. Okay, God, I'm going to lift my hands now. I, I know this is going to move you. Oh, you know what? I'm going to dance. Yeah. God, I know. Oh, man. Lord, you like this? Isn't that weird? It's weird. Right? But it also works the other way. I'm never going to. What if I said I'll never dance or I'll never lift my hand? You see, this is why it's so important for us all to understand who has already defined what worship is. The Lord has. This is really about moving our heart into a posture of understanding his heart. This isn't about me trying to make him do something because that would be like the prophets of Baal. Dance a little harder. Cut, cut, cut. And Elijah's sitting back just laughing. Saying the God who answers by fire, he'll burn up the sacrifice. Maybe y'all need to dance and cut yourself a little more. See, this is an extravagant dancing pad. We got flags, we got drums, we got people worshiping and kids running around at second service. And this is a wild atmosphere, but it's not a free-for-all. This isn't some chaotic, crazy place. It may seem that way to some people, but it's actually by design. There are guide wires in this vineyard. You just don't see them. And I don't post rules on the wall that says, thou shall not, shout, fall on your face, dance like a fool, scream, thou shall not sing too loudly, thou shall not bring your drums, your tambourines, or flags, thou shalt do it exactly the way you're told to. That would be control. But at the same time, if you're out of order and out of line, out of the culture of this house, you're alone. I can't tell you how many times I have been in the most holiest of moments 
with the Lord in the presence of God. And I'm laying on the floor, and somebody right next to me starts wailing and travailing. And they're the only one doing it. And now all eyes that were on the Lord went to the person. And sometimes the Lord said to me, that's not of me, and it's a distraction, stop it. But sometimes the Lord says, let them go, because they're getting free. This is why last week I taught you about discernment. You have to learn to discern. Is it David dancing mightily, or is he really being a silly fool? Right? So we have to be careful that we're not the ones that are predetermining what worship has to look like. And I will publicly repent, and I did this last week, for ever forcing or pushing you to do something that you're not comfortable to do. And I don't know many pastors that would ever do that. I know that there's people that have come and they felt pressure that they had to look like something or be like something or do it a certain way. And I never want you to feel that way here. So please, if you've ever felt that way, take the pressure off. All I want you to do is worship because worship can look like resting and falling asleep in your chair. It can look like laying flat on the ground. It can look like kneeling. It can look like sitting. I don't care what it looks like. What I can tell you is scoffing with your arms closed and being a skeptic at what everybody else is doing is not proper worship. Stop that. I can tell you stop that. Just, you gotta learn who God is because if you really knew, you'd never be the same. And that's what God's point was to me was if I really knew who he was, why would I be in fear? If God is for you, who can be against you? In fact, I can give you a hundred scriptures to talk about God being daily in, involved in your daily life because he loves you and cares for you. Cast your cares on him, he cares for you. The eyes of the Lord are attentive to the righteous and his ear to their cry. Once you're in Christ and covered in the blood, you're sons and daughters. There's never a time I'm gonna ignore my son. And when my son comes to me, first off, I want you to understand I've already forgiven my son of anything he would ever do. Anything. But do I expect my son to come and apologize? You bet. So I already know that the Lord's forgiven me, but how nice is it when I'm like, Lord, I'm so sorry. He's like, I know you are, son, come here. So many times I feel that repentance from an honest heart moving the father's heart because he loves me like a good dad. He's a good dad. If you only knew how wonderful he was, for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. See, I can't not worship. If you wanna kill me, just tell me I can't worship. The government tried to tell us we couldn't worship in the lockdowns. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I had a blaster in those seven weeks. <laughs> really, seriously. I really enjoyed Sunday mornings on the screen at home with my family. I mean, I've never missed church. It's, the day that I gave my life to the Lord, I never missed a Sunday morning service. So seven weeks of being at home for me was awesome. And then, and then I'd come in here and they, everybody put the signs up of all y'all's faces in here, and I was preaching to cardboard faces. It was so fun. And you know, I gave it all I got, but I can tell you right now, I'm never shutting down again. And if I could go back and do it over, I would stay open. Because the government can't, the government should never dictate if we're gonna worship, ever, right? But I was fine with it. I, I was like, hey, I know some people were, and like you shouldn't, should. hey, I had a blast. My family had a blast, and actually this church grew because of it. This church grew because of it, because more people were watching online. 
So now people that had never seen Rock City or heard me preach were now watching from home. We were having a 1,000 people watching on Sunday mornings from their homes during that time. But the point is, is that no one should ever be able to dictate your worship, and you should never predefine what it's going to look like. So how many of you were, were not here last week? Okay, a few of you. Go back and listen to last week's message. Last week I talked about when I first got to town, I went to a men's meeting at Luby's Cafeteria with Victory Outreach here in town, and it was all, all guys right out of prison, right off, out of the streets, or in recovery, which is really my crowd. I like that crowd. And so I am going to Luby's. I walk in, and up front is a guy banging on a Casio keyboard with techno music, and I'm like, I'm going to the back. This is bad. I don't want to be in the front because I'm always the guy that gets singled out. Realize I looked like I was straight out of jail, long hair, or right off the beach as a surfer. So I wanted to sit in the back. The Lord, the Lord admonished me, says, no, you're going to go sit in the front. And I went up to the front, and I just said, screw it. Who cares what everybody else thinks? I'm going to worship no matter what. And see, I think so many times we're so concerned what everybody else is going to think. That's a man-pleasing spirit. That's why we have this culture. That's part of the reason why it's a little louder and the lights are a little dimmer and you're like, what's going on? Is this a nightclub? Are we in a party? You know, when I first gave my life to the Lord, I was in prison. I've shared the story many times. When I got out of prison, I went to a church in Miami. When I walked into the church, I walked in and it was the ultimate of charismaniac. There were people rolling on the floor, laughing, their heads off. I mean, it was a Holy Ghost party. There were banners and flags and tambourines. I had never been into a church like that before. But you have to understand, I saw 45 Grateful Dead concerts tripping on acid. So I walk into this church and I'm like, this is weird. Where's the drugs? I'm sure people think that here at times too. I'm like, this is weird. Where's the alcohol? And because you have to understand, I had never been to church since I was a kid. All I went to was Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Catholic, and hymns. So the first church I ever went to post-prison was a full-scale, charismaniac, wild party. And I walk in, I'm seeing people everywhere, and I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. No drugs. I mean, I could have understood it if, there was a, if it was a party. Because I, I went to raves. I twirled glow sticks and fire at raves. It was like a rave to me. And I quickly realized these people, they're not under the influence as I supposed. They were under a different kind of influence. And though it was an extreme, I needed that. You must understand, as much as some people criticize this culture and criticize the extravagance and the flags, it's like, I don't like all that. You have got to realize who this pastor is. I was birthed in crazy. I was birthed in wild, extravagant. And I was like, man, this is wild. And then it was as if the people parted like the Red Sea in front of me. And up front was a jamming band like this one. I'd never seen a band in church. But you'll never guess what was up on that stage. A brand new pair of shiny conga drums. And I, was a, I had played in reggae bands prior to going to prison. 
And so there's a brand new pair of conga drums like, like the ones up there now, and nobody was playing them. Now, if you're a musician, just go to a church. First off, you'll want to play only one of two times when they're playing really good or they're playing really bad, right? No one was on the percussion. So guess what I'm saying? I need to be, I need to be on this worship team. So God took me straight out of prison into a wild, crazy church, and he put me in a church that had congas with no percussion player because was, I was tricked. He tricked me. He set me up. Do you understand? you understand this? Because the temptation was to go back to the reggae band and South Miami Beach and the clubs. I'm brand new baby Christian. So God was showing me that I could be a part of something that was better than what I was a part of before. He made a way for me. And so it wasn't long before I was on that worship team. It wasn't long before I was giving the Lord my gift now instead of for the world. I was giving my gift in percussion to him in worship. And I never went back. I never went back to the reggae band. I never went back to South Miami Beach the way that I was before. My life was radically, radically changed. And so there I am, I'm at that Luby's cafeteria and I'm worshiping. The Lord had admonished me. He's like, get up there and worship. I can give you so many stories of how God taught me how to worship. But I also learned through others. For example, think about your children. Who do they look up to the most? Their parents. Who do they emulate? Their parents. That's a scary thought with some of us. I love y'all, but I'm telling you right now, your son and daughter often worships the exact way that you do. Now, I don't force my kids to worship the way that I do. I don't force my son, Zion, who's about to turn nine, or kid. I don't ever tell them, get up there and worship right now. Get your hands up and start dancing. I never would do that to my kids. It's silly. If my kids want to sit down, they can sit down, but I tell them, hey, we're here to worship now. And they may completely be disengaged and have no idea what that means or looks like, but guess who they're watching? They're watching their dad. Now, my wife will never worship the way that I worship. She's never, I don't want to say never because you never know what God can do. And the minute you say never is the minute he's going to flip you upside down. I double dog dare you to say you'll never dance. Go ahead. Say it. Go ahead. You watch what God does. Say I'll never cry. Say I'll never raise your, my hands. I'm never going to. The minute you say never is the minute God's. There's people that have said, I will never go to this church, this pedal, what did you say? Pedal, <laughs> puddle jumping, no, pew hopping, something to that effect, church. <laughs> Dr. Rose, he's like, I'm never going to go to that church. Here he is. And he's preached here and got flipped upside down, praised in tongues, baptized in the Holy Spirit, prophesied more than ever before. That's the, that's the humor of God. But where it stops is when you resist and say, and you can say you'll never, but you can miss lots of years of your life of the joy that God has. You know, I walked once into a church where everybody was up front. I was late to the church service in Missouri. I was, I was on a little road trip up to my hometown in Missouri, and I stopped at a, at a charismatic church that I looked up online. And when I walked in, I came in and I sat in the back. So I walked into the back. All the pews were empty. The chairs, there weren't pews. And everybody was up front worshiping. And I walked in, and they were all on their face in the front. And I was late. 
I just want to lovingly say to y'all, I would encourage you to start coming on time because one of these days I'm going to start worship second and I'm going to do the preaching first. Okay? I'm not doing it on purpose to call people out for being late. I, I am notoriously known for being late. I just want you to know. But the point is, is that we treat worship like the secondary thing, not the primary thing. What's more important, the preaching or the worship? But what's more important? The worship. The worship's always, because worship's exposing yourself. Worship requires you to open yourself up. That's why so many people are closed off, because of shame or fear or if God saw. Listen, he already sees expose yourself. But like, don't take your clothes off, but expose yourself to the Lord, right? And so I walk in and everybody's up front and I'm going, this place is dead. Why are all those people up there in the front? I don't feel anything in this house. I remember I said, I'm gonna sit down here in the back. And the Lord said, get your butt up out of the seat. Now I'm not talking to y'all. This is what the Lord said to me. I don't care where you, where you sit. God, God's in this whole place. The Lord said, get up out of that back seat and go up to the front. I said, really, Lord? They're all up there on their face. I want to just sit down back here and observe. And Lord said, this worship is not a spectator sport. Get up out of the seat and go to the front. So, So this is what happened. I got up. I'm complaining in my heart to the Lord and kind of looking around. All these people are up front. And I promise you, the second I took one step past the first row, I felt like I stepped into Niagara Falls. My hair stood on it. It was like I could barely stand. I felt like I was in a downpour of the presence of God, like an open heaven. Literally, I felt like I stepped into a portal where it was straight open heaven to the Lord. But back here, I felt nothing. But the second I came up here, Why? It has nothing to do with this building. This building is nothing but an empty shell of a building without the people and God in their heart in it. Why was the presence of God so strong up here? Because all the people were laid prostrate in their hearts down low in submission to the Lord. So the presence of God was so strong because the people were there in authentic worship. And what I want you to understand is it's not about this house or that house. I I'm lead pastors groups with Methodists and Lutheran and Baptist and Presbyterian, and they all worship different, and I don't understand that. If you put me in, in, a, in a Church of Christ church where they only sang a cappella or a church that didn't believe in the move of the Spirit or was cessationist, I would die. Literally, I would die. But that doesn't mean that those people aren't worshiping the way that they know. And if I get critical and judgmental and start questioning them and saying, that's not worship, this is worship, Rock City's doing it right, but New Life isn't doing it right, or New Life's doing it right, but Rock City's not doing it right, the minute you fall into that comparison and judging and questioning everybody else is the minute you miss what God has for you. Stop. Be true to yourself with the Lord. Stick to the tribe and the house that God puts you in. I don't need to try to be like anybody else. I need to be authentic. Because God wants spirit and truth worship. He wants you to come as you are and cry out to him with authenticity. He doesn't want you to be pretentious. Just come. And you know what? Listen to the Lord so he can lead and guide you. So what I realized was that I didn't really believe the songs that I was singing. 
because I probably really don't really know fully who the Lord is. In fact, I'm going to publicly confess that I don't know every single thing there is to know about God. I know that shocks you. I'm being facetious. I really, no, none of us know everything that there is to know about the Lord. So in many ways, we're still worshiping th- characteristics and attributes about him that we don't know. But we still worship. And over time, he reveals more of himself to you. So now I can give you a list. If you ask me to write down every reason why I worship, I'd have list after list after list after list. But some people have no list. They have no understanding. The cross, the blood, forgiveness, mercy, the goodness of God, the kindness of God. He's a good father. He loves me as a son. He desires me. He wants to come close to me and wrap me in his arms and comfort me in the midst of my struggle and my weakness. And I can go down the list of all the reasons. In fact, one of the reasons is I was so bad last night. I screwed it up so bad. I actually didn't, but I'm giving you an example because I have many times. Man, I bombed it to no end and I did the worst thing I could ever tell you, but I drugged myself into church. And God went, I got you where I want you to be. Because God, it's about the posture of your hearts. Like some of you said, I'm never going to get slain in the spirit and lay out on the ground. People say that. I'll never fall out. Okay. So then God will have to knock you out to get you down. I mean, what's it going to take? And why would he ever want you on your back? Because some of you never get in a position and a posture where God can truly speak to you in intimacy because you're always busy, you're always working, even your prayer life is work. There's no rest in it. So God has to knock you out at the altar and I'm never for anybody pushing you. This isn't about pushing you down, but I can't tell you how many times I'm at the altar and I'm praying and my knees start to get a little bit weak and I start to feel like woozy a little bit and then I hear the Lord say, go down, son. I'm like, no, Lord, I'm going to stay standing. I'm not going to fall out. Come on, so you barely. Hold me up. I'm not going down. It's like, no, I'm going down. In fact, in those moments, I don't even need to fall out. I'll just go ahead and get down. Because one, if you actually, when we study out the word for worship, it literally means to bow in submission and to submit like a dog would submit to his master. You're not a dog, but the point is, it's complete humility and trust and surrender to the things of God in worship and bowing down in submission to him, which is one form of worship. There's so many different types of worship. There's seven Hebrew words for worship. One of them is this. Woo! It's literally the word halal. It's where we get the word hallelujah. That's right. There's dancing clamorously, and, and then there's bowing in submission or prostrate or kneeling. There's lifting your hands. There's singing in song. There's banging the drums and instruments and worship only from the instruments. So if I say to the band one time, hey, I want you to go 10 minutes with no singing, some people are going to go, You'll, some of us will feel so lost. Think about it for a moment because there's no lyrics. And that's why I'm going to teach you about bringing your own song, singing spiritual songs and hymns. So when each person comes, each person has something to bring. But the challenge is, is in our Western Americanized culture, much of what I have learned that we have created here is missing the mark on going deeper in what worship really looks like. And I don't want it to stay the same. I don't want this worship to stay the same. If you like this and you think it's comfortable, I'm gonna bl- we're going to blow it up. 
I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not going to try to make it happen. But what I am going to say to you is, is there's deeper levels and understandings of worship that every single one of us can enter into that takes us into dimensions of the Father's heart like we've never known or seen before. Visions and seeing and encounters and the glory of God and the presence. I want that so desperately in this house. And I want it desperately for all of us because it changes, changes us. One second in his presence like that will change you forever. Even though I confessed the truth in my songs, I really didn't know it for myself. So it was more like an, a lob up, I hope so, instead of an I know so. And I want to challenge you, you can know so. You can know so. God is a good God. He loves you so much. He cares so deeply about you. Last week, I talked about the woman at the well in Samaria. And I want to pull out John 4.22 again for you. When Jesus corrected her when she was trying to challenge him theologically, the woman at the well says to Jesus, after he prophesies over her about the five husbands that she's had and the one man that she's living with that's not her husband, her response to that prophecy was, our fathers worship on this mountain and your fathers worship on that mountain. Jesus says, there's coming a time where you'll worship on neither. It's not about the mountain. It's about spirit and truth. It's not about the denomination. It's not about the building. It's not about the house. It's about spirit and truth worship. So when I was in Albuquerque and I went to the church and I started crying out to the Lord and they asked me to stop and get back to my seat and I was offended, who was wrong? Them for not allowing people to cry out or me for not submitting to the house? I was, because I still could have worshiped even though it wasn't my style. Could I stay there long-term? No. When I went to Willow Creek in Chicago, Phillips, Craig, and Dean's playing, I'm the only one lifting up my hands and I felt like I was in prison. Was I in prison? See, this is the error. I was in error. Now, I've learned that atmospheres and long-term culture is important because it cultivates my life. But I could go right now to the Catholic Church, Presbyterian Church, Methodist Church, Church of Christ and still worship or the Baptist Church down the street. And if they're not doing it my way, that's okay because worship's not about my way, it's about my heart. You guys understand that? So Jesus says to the woman at the well, John 4, 22, you worship what you don't know. I want to tag on to that for just a moment because so many times we worship what we don't know. And I want you to know who you're worshiping. I don't want, you can still worship and not know it all, but you can grow in your understanding of the Father's heart and the Father's love and what Christ did for you on the cross and know him better. We have to stop worshiping what we don't know. But notice this, she had five husbands living in adultery and she still worshiped. Because she's challenging him on worship. I suggest that her worship was a reflection of her life in two ways. Number one, she was worshiping what she didn't know and her life was a mess. But on the flip side, by her authentic cry to the Lord, I bet you that the father set up the encounter with Jesus at the well with her. That's why you never stop worshiping, even if you don't fully know. But proper worship always aligns our heart to proper living. Acts 17, 22, and 28, this is an incredible story. I'm going to read it to you real quick, and this will be the, the full topic of today's message. Acts 17, 22, and 28, Paul is at the Areopagus, or actually Areopagus is how you say it properly. Greek philosophers, 
It's a little outcrop hill next to the Acropolis. I've climbed it. I've been there. Paul goes to Athens, and he sees that the city's given over to idols. This is so much like today, by the way. He goes to Athens. I've been to Athens in 2008, and the city is full of idolatry. And Paul's there, and he sees the city's given over to idols, and he's provoked in his spirit to do something about it. This is why we cannot sit back in a culture like we have today and be silent. So Paul, and Paul didn't just go to the local synagogues and the Gentile churches. He went right to where the source of the demonic worship and leadership was in the city. You can't be afraid. We bring life to the darkest of places. And he wasn't silent. So he goes and he starts preaching to the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. They're like, you're a babbler. You're a seed picker. You're picking up from everybody else. But he continues on. And then finally, they're like, we're going to take you to the Areopagus, where the leading governing council of the day was. All the philosophers were there. And so here comes Paul. And Paul's standing for the Areopagus, which actually means the hill of Ares, right? The god of war. How many of you saw Wonder Woman? The great movie, by the way. Actually, awesome movie. The god of war and destruction, Ares. It's the hill of Ares. Or the Greeks' same equal god was Mars. So it was Mars Hill. And here comes Paul with the gospel before the Greek philosophers and all around at the Areopagus are all kinds of idol worshiper, idol worshiping altars. So imagine you are in, in modern day times, you would have the Buddhist altar or the I Ching altar or the Allah altar or all these different altars. Why? Because it was a pantheistic culture. They worshiped all kinds of gods. And just in case they missed one, they had the altar to the unknown God. Let's pick up the story. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Now this is not a good religious. This word is superstitious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, which means that there were a lot of objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If you were standing on the Areopagus before all the Greek philosophers with idols everywhere, and you had one opportunity to say something, what would you say? Well, that's not what he said. That's not what he said. He didn't even say the name of Jesus. Nope, you got to be spirit-led. Because even the name of Jesus at the wrong time will get you kicked out. God prophetically knew what the Areopagus needed to hear. Let's look. This was his response, all right? The God that you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, what does he first go to? Creation. Because all creation speaks of the beauty and the wonder of the Lord. In fact, the invisible God, all things about him are made known through the visible. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. So now he immediately put God above all of their idols because he was the creator that created everything. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Well, that's the first thing that he slayed because think of the Acropolis. Think of the, the Parthenon. 
Think of all of their idol. You had the seven wonders, uh, the temple of Diana in Greece, or in, that was in Turkey. But still, in that day, you had all these incredible houses of worship. And what did he say? God doesn't dwell in houses made by man. That's one of the first things we need to realize. I love Rock City. This is my home. This is my family. But the minute that I start to think, well, God dwells here and he doesn't dwell there, is the minute God says, well, we're done here. And that's why we have to be extremely careful in our comparisons. It says, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed something. This is so powerful. God doesn't need your worship. He desires you because he loves you. We don't come in here to do our duty. We come in here to encounter the living God in communion and intimacy. I want him. I need him. And I can get him privately or walking on the beach and in my room alone. But something happens when people come together in unity. The Lord inhabits the praises of his saints. There's something I get here that I'll never get alone. I, in fact, many times I'd rather be alone. Can anybody relate? Many times, man, my worship alone is awesome. As soon as I got around y'all, it was bad. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I will say, though, sometimes I just have to close my eyes because I know, and it's not you guys in general, but some people come in, they're skeptical. I'm under the microscope. The church is under the microscope, and they're wanting their, I mean, many people are determining right now if they like me, don't like me. Is the message good? Is the message bad? I hate that. Let's just make it bad so that we can get past that. That's right. Let's just not judge and trust God. But the point is, is it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. What matters is, is we're here to worship the Lord. We're here to celebrate the goodness of God no matter what, right? And so we get something together that we don't get privately. But it's not a matter of that God needs our worship. And I don't get to dictate it with my own hands. That's what's powerful about this scripture. We don't determine it. God determines it. He gives to all, verse 25, life, breath, and all things. Verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Why? You've got to see this in verse 27. So that they would seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. You know what that means? Here's what that means. God already predetermined the nations and the dwelling places or the boundaries of man for a purpose. Now, I interpret it this way. No matter what your situation or your circumstance is, no matter how hemmed in you feel, it was for a purpose. To grope after the Lord, I know that sounds strange, but it literally means I'm reaching out to touch God no matter how much darkness or struggle or challenge is around me. So, so Paul's response to the Areopagus was this. God created everything. He doesn't need the Parthenon. He doesn't need your altars. He doesn't need you to figure out a way to worship him with your hands. I'm summarizing the story. Because he's the one that gives. He doesn't need it. He's the giver. It's not, he's not a narcissist. 
God's not a narcissist. He's a father that loves you. Let me just tell you, nothing moves my heart more than when my little girl or my son comes to me and wraps their arms around me. Or even in their weakness or their brokenness or their failure, when they weep and cry and they say, Daddy, please forgive me. I said, Son, I already forgave you. Come here. I love you so much. Nothing moves my heart more. And right now, I know what's best for my children. The key is that I'm not trying to make them like me. I'm trying to make them like him. You train a child in the way that they should go. So God trained me in proper worship. Now I train them in proper worship. Because if my son just comes up here being a crazy wild person trying to be silly for the fun of it, though God might like that for now because he's a child, the point is, is that my son needs to realize why we're really doing what we're doing right? It's not a show. It's not a dog and pony show. This is communion with the living God. This is reverence. One of the challenges with charismatic churches like ours is that we can tend to lack reverence, but you go to the Orthodox church and they go to the other extreme of reverence. You got to find the balance. And where's the balance? The balance is in your heart because I'm not going to dictate your worship. Now, sometimes I'm going to say, okay, come on, guys. Let's everybody together lift our hands. In unity, as an act of surrender, we're worshiping. But, and sometimes I say, come on, let's sing in the Spirit together. But some people don't know how to sing in the Spirit. And I'm not going, you know, you don't know how to sing. What's the matter with you? You don't know how to sing in the Spirit? Come on, man, get it together. No, I'm not doing that. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm challenging you to grow in your worship like a coach. Think more like a coach, not forcing you. That's why I've asked for forgiveness when I force people to do things. I used to say, now everybody dance. And some people are like, my, and I learned from my wife, God put me totally with my opposite. My wife is my complete opposite. She's like, yeah, no. I'm like, okay, well, that's between you and the Lord. And that's when I got free. Because I don't really care what you do or how you do it. I just care that you do it. You understand? Now think about this, and I'll close with this. The Apostle Paul says, he pre-appointed the boundaries and the people's dwellings. Now, I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but I want to bring it home. I believe that the Lord is sovereign, and I believe in many ways the Lord pre-appoints our dwellings and our boundaries. Who set the boundary? He did. Why? It says that people might seek him. Notice the scripture. Let me show it to you. This is so powerful for you to catch this. Verse 27. In verse 27, it says, he pre-appointed their boundaries and their dwellings for a purpose. Everybody say, for a purpose. Could there possibly be a purpose in your situation right now? Are you going through one of the worst situations you've ever faced in your life, possibly? Are you in a hard spot? Are you battling addiction? Are you battling relationship problems? Are you battling stuff in your own heart? All of us have things we're working through. I cry out to the Lord 17 times a day. Literally crying out to the Lord consistently for situations in my own heart. I don't need to tell you what they are. No, it's not overt sin the way you think it is. Or somebody might. That's not what it is. It's me and my desperation for things to shift in people's lives and my children. My finances and my businesses is hard. Pastoring is hard. So why so many people won't say yes to stepping into more ministry. 
Because you got your own stuff. Why would I want to deal with somebody else's stuff? But God doesn't call it. He says, step into helping people with their stuff and I'll help you with yours. I have more grace to help you with your stuff because the more I'm helping you, I see God moving in my own heart. I cry out David seven times a day. He blew the Muslims out of the water who pray three times a day consistently at set times. David said seven times. Was it really seven times? No. Seven was the number of perfection, which means I'm constantly crying out to the Lord. Man, I got IHOP in my headphones. I'm worshiping. I'm singing in the spirit while I'm feeding the goats and the pigs. I'm seriously, I'm, I'm, that's how aggressive I want to be. You don't have to be that aggressive, but I know what's coming against my family. And I know I'm wrestling spiritual wickedness and principalities in high places. I'm not going to be a nice Christian. Lord, I want to be aggressive and passionate in my worship, but not by my own design. Because if I said aggressive according to my own design, I would be pushing it on y'all and building altars to an unknown God. So he says, you're hemmed in. Everybody say, I'm hemmed in. Now say, I'm hemmed in for a purpose, to worship, to seek God. Now, it would have been weird to call this message groping for God. Nobody would have understood that. But do you know it's there? You know what grope means? It doesn't mean to feel him inappropriately. It means to reach and grab for him properly. And it means that I may be in a dark room with no light switch. You know, every night I put my kids to bed, I literally broke my pinky toe in my right foot two nights ago. My whole foot is black. I can hardly walk. Not kidding you. I mean, I'm... Doing good now, but it's bad. My whole foot's black and blue. Because my son's room is so dark and his room is so stinking messy half the time. We're always in this fight for him to clean his room. Anybody, can anybody relate? It's like every day. Now, the good news is he plays hard in his room, but you know what's everyone's room? Legos. And so we go in, and, and I'm going to tell you how this works. We got the fan going on. And he's listening to worship music. Every night our kids listen to worship music at bedtime. It's dark. I'm exhausted. I mean, they're going to bed at 8.39. It might as well be one in the morning for me. I'm like cross-eyed tired. I have gotten old. I could go to bed easily at that time. Not my wife, though. Her prime time is 11 o'clock at night. I don't know how that happens to her. Anyway, I'm putting my son to bed. It's pitch black. I can't see a thing. And I break my little toe on a wicker basket full of Legos, and then I step on five Legos out the door. That's a classic picture of groping my way to get out. <laughs> it's fun being a dad. Great stories. Look, if you're in a dark spot, reach for God. Come as you are. I don't care if you're the tax collector or if you're the high priest that knew all the right things to do and didn't have any sin, still wearing bells on his ankle so he wouldn't die. In case he did, there'd be no sound and they'd have to pull him out. I'm just telling you, lay your life down at the cross, wash yourself in the word, come before the Lord in the inner court, the candlestick, the bread, the proper incense, come authentically before the Lord and worship him in spirit and in truth. Not your truth, his truth. Not my truth, his truth. So when I come to the Lord, Lord, what do you want to say? What do you want to do? You know, when we get to the spot to talk about David and his musicians, he had 280 skilled musicians and 4,000 singers. 
4,000 singers and 280 skilled musicians. Guess how they were picked? They cast lots, but another way to say it is they asked God who he wanted, and ultimately David would learn how he wanted. If we can kill this thing of me predetermining what it's going to be and what it's going to look like, I'd probably have a lot better worship experiences or encounters with the Lord. So would you. I just challenge you, never hold back. I don't care what it looks like. Don't feel pressure. The last thing I want you to do is feel pressure. I want you to worship, though, because worship will change your life. Amen? Let's all stand. Now we're going to take a moment to worship, and then I'm going to pray for you. Anybody's welcome to come up to the front, stay in your seat. I'd ask you not to leave yet. Let's close out this service with an act of authentic worship. Who cares what anybody thinks? Who cares what it looks like? In unity together, not one more than the other or less than the other, all of us together in this house. I'm gonna challenge you as an act of surrender and worship to just lift your hands to the Lord for a moment. You can close your eyes. It doesn't matter what anybody's thinking. Even if you're watching online right now and you're at home in your room, just lift your hands to the Lord. Don't do it if you're driving. All right, come on, Nathan. Lead us in a, lead us in a time of worship. Let's sing to the Lord and surrender to him. Thank you, God.
Come on, just begin to express your gratitude to the Lord in your own words. Tell him what you're thankful for. Just tell him that you love him. Lord, I love you. I thank you, God. Just tell him the things you're grateful for. It's easy to complain. But don't be that complainer today. Just tell him, Lord, I'm thankful for my job, my kids, my family, my health. I'm thankful that in the midst of every struggle, you're there. Just take a moment. Have a moment with him today. Express from your own heart your love and your gratitude to him. Commune with the Lord this morning. Talk to him as a best friend. Make your requests known to God. Cast your cares upon him. Give him your spouse, your friend, your desires, your children, your job, your money. Just give it to him. Lord, I love you. God, I thank you. God, forgive me. Have mercy. For any way that I have made worship. That's not according to your heart or your desire, Lord. God, I love you. I want to know you for who you really are. Not who I think you are. Lord, I pray for this church. That we would grow as worshipers. That we'd pour our love out upon you. Never hold back or be afraid. Lord, break the lies and the fear and the worry. Thank you, God, for your peace, your presence, kindness, and your mercy. Sorry, Lord, for anything I've taken for granted. Sorry for holding back my love and my adoration to you. I love you, Lord. I love you so much. Lord, just tell him you love him today. Love you so much, Lord. So thankful for you. You're amazing, you're wonderful, you're the best dad. Thank you for your love, thank you for the blood. Thank you that because you delight in us, you bring us into a broad place. Lord, I ask that everything that's held us back, that you would break it off of our lives, Lord. I love you, Lord.